Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. If you're snacking on anything but tasty cake, you're making a huge miss cake. A fistful of chocolate-covered raisins, Miss Cake. A spoonful of peanut butter, bigger Miss Cake. Or the worst Miss Cake of all, your kid's Halloween candy, and it's April. If it's not Tasty Cake, it's a Miss Cake, because nothing satisfies like a perfectly sweet butterscotch crimpet or rich and creamy chocolate peanut butter candy cake. Tasty Cake, except no substitutes. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Billboard.com Pop Shop Podcast. My name is Keith Caulfield, and I am the Senior Director of Charts at Billboard. Now, today on the show, we've got a special edition of the podcast focused entirely on an interview with producer Greg Wells. He's one of the folks behind the runaway smash soundtrack, The Greatest Showman, and he's worked with a few A-listers you may have heard of, including Katy Perry and Adele. So stick around for that in just one second, because as always... The Billboard Pop Shop Podcast is your one-stop shop for all things pop on Billboard's weekly charts. In addition, you can always count on a lively discussion about the latest pop news, fun chart stats and stories, new music, and guest interviews with music stars and folks from the world of pop. But first, before we get started, if you enjoy the podcast, subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider so you won't miss an episode. And if you want to explore more podcasts from Billboard, visit billboard.com slash podcasts. Okay, so when we talked to Greg for uh, the pop shop, we ended up having such an interesting and, and lengthy conversation, quite honestly. We thought we could just focus an entire episode around the interview because we didn't. there was like so much stuff there. We didn't want to trim out things just to kind of trim it down for the show length. So we thought, well... This is a really interesting conversation. Why not just sort of present, you know, effectively, you know, the whole shebang? So that's what we're going to do. Greg is a two-time Grammy Award nominee and has most recently been hitting the charts thanks to his work on The Greatest Showman soundtrack. He produced six songs on the album, uh, including the breakout hit This Is Me, as performed by Kiala Settle. Uh, this Is Me became a hit on the charts as well, which is kind of unusual for a song from a musical soundtrack. Um, the album actually spent two weeks at number one on the Billboard 200 chart and has sold more than a million copies in the United States, which is a huge feat, as few albums sell that much anymore. Uh, in fact, in all of 2017, just two albums sold a million copies, according to Nielsen Music. Taylor Swift's Reputation, and Ed Sheeran's Divide. Um, so, you know, obviously, we're going to chat a lot about The Greatest Showman uh, in our conversation with Greg, but 
We also dive into his past to discuss how he got his start in the business, what some of his early big breaks were, including working with Lindsay Lohan, um, how he got involved with The Greatest Showman. Plus, we get into some behind-the-scenes stories of him working with Dua Lipa, 21 Pilots, Katy Perry, and, of course, Adele. You may have heard of her, you know, a rising star named Adele. Uh, So, here's our conversation with Greg Wells. Welcome to the Billboard Pop Shop Podcast. Greg Wells, how are you? Thank you for having me. Uh, you just flew in from the Great White North. Not really. Mentally. Mentally. Yeah, I've been here the whole time. But. Um, uh, we were talking before we started um, recording how you've lived here in L.A., right? L.A. for 27 years? Yeah. Um, did you move here specifically uh, like to go to school to become part of the music industry? Or I, yes. Something? Oh, okay. I'm just guessing. I didn't know. That's exactly it. Uh, although the school that I had... Um, enrolled in by the time I got here had gone bankrupt. Well, great. They went under, and, and I I had a... Um, uh, the father of the guy who's the prime minister now in Canada, Justin Trudeau, his dad, Pierre Trudeau, was a lover of the arts. He was a real intellectual, like, super lefty dude, and he set up this thing called the Canada Council for the Arts. And they give out grants to everything from like ballets to... Uh, music teachers that want to take a sabbatical and go study something uh, to playwrights to just everything Um, and I applied for a grant to go to the Dick Grove School of Music which was a great music school here in Los Angeles in the valley in uh, in Van Nuys and I thought I wasn't going to get the grant and I got a letter almost a year later saying you got it I had to read it like five times because I was convinced it said you thanks for applying but you didn't get it thanks for playing but stay home kid yeah and uh so I had just joined this is, I don't know how good a story this is but I just joined a band We can edit it later Please, and make you sound chop, scintillating Chop me up <clears throat> I joined a band that I really loved in Canada um, which I didn't know was going to happen that happened after I applied for this grant so I didn't want to immediately leave so I said can I go a year later they said yes Anyway the school was gone by the time I was ready to go and so I wrote back to them and said I still would really like to go to Los Angeles but can I study uh, with a private teacher instead and the, uh, I had two private teachers Terry Trotter a fantastic piano player who played with Frank Sinatra and Larry Carlton the guitarist and, mm-hmm. and then uh, Claire Fisher who did many 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 things uh, most famously probably he wrote all the string arrangements for Prince on every Prince record that you ever hear strings that's Claire writing it himself Prince never told him what to do he just said just do your thing hmm. he was really a musical genius um and they said, as long as you get letters from those guys saying that they'll take you on, we're fine with that. So that's what led me here. Here, just take the money and go to L.A., basically. And a lot of takeout us- food. So, oh, okay. And and how long did that the, did that last for? Uh, it was just like a year-long sort of It was study. a year. A year. Yeah, it was just enough money. It was 14000 Canadian dollars. And what year was this? Uh, 1990. So, but your sort of first kind of like big credits actually came not terribly far after that like i want to say like maybe like mid to like late 90s am i right late 90s late 90s late 90s yeah so um what were you doing between that first year and between like what you would consider like your sort of first professional like production gig so to speak like writing or producing with someone i was here for a long time before anything took any kind of traction um you know i was here to study i didn't have a work visa so I was illegal. I could not work. Oh, wow. Well. And then and didn't work. So I and I also you have to remember this is like pre cell phones, pre internet. 
I didn't know anybody. I'd never been to California. I didn't know anybody in Los Angeles when I moved here. I kind of knew one drummer. I played with him for a couple weeks uh, in Toronto. And he introduced me to a couple people, and I went to his house for dinner a few times. But that was it. Wow. Um, so it was just walk backwards into all of this. Hmm. Um, and uh, my piano teachers actually started recommending me for some uh, song demo work as a piano player in some of the kind of more affordable studios around scattered around Hollywood and North Hollywood. Um, and then I started meeting a bunch of songwriters and, you know, again, this is pre laptop world. So right. those songwriters needed to rent studios or hire musicians because a lot of them didn't play instruments. Right. There, there wasn't just one magical program on your laptop that would emulate every single instrument that you wanted necessarily. So you'd actually have to go to a studio, hire people, record things with flesh and blood, human beings, mm-hmm. rent spaces. This is not just, I've got a hot beat and uh, yeah, that didn't, press play. I mean, you know, hot sort beats of. existed, but it was a very regional thing. Uh, um, and at the time, it was really more East Coast and it was like early hip hop, you know. And so that, so that kind of beginnings of you kind of playing and you know, working with people to like sort of execute demos or trying to just sort of meet people that networking might that sort of thing might happen a lot faster today because of technology oh, it's one tweet and yeah social networking and then but back then it's like what you achieved in that span of time was actually something that might be achieved in a, a sort of a shorter amount of time now definitely um so when people think, oh, wow, it, you know, it took a couple of years, you know, I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, it's most people just don't sort of fall into like, I'm going to produce, you know, 21 pilots. Like you don't just sort of fall into that. You know, that's that's it. So it took it took a little bit a little bit of time um, for you to get to that point. What do you think was like the thing that like you, the, the one moment where you're like, oh, I feel like this is going to lead me to something or was it always gradual to you? Like, did you always like there wasn't like one thing where you felt like this is like the moment where something big was going to happen? You know, I come from uh, such uh, such humble beginnings and uh, no one really did music around me growing up. I don't come from a family of musicians like a lot of people that are in music. It wasn't modeled for me. Um, so it all felt very far away and very exotic. And. I would have that feeling that you just described when I met anybody that did something professional and musical. Anything remotely connected to the industry at all. It was all. exciting for me. Yeah. Yeah. Really was and felt like, wow, like I've met I've met an alien from the planet I've been dreaming about my whole life. That's right. really what it felt like. Um, so there were lots of spikes and uh, here's an interesting story. This isn't. It's not the exact answer that you for the question you asked, but it's... Damn it, give me the one answer I want. It's a pretty good okay. answer. So, I, in the early to mid-2000s, I had met the great songwriter Cara DiGuardi, and we really hit it off. She's a fantastic pop songwriter. Cara, for, for those listening, used to be a judge on American Idol, which is what most people at home may have recognized her for, but she also wrote a bajillion pop hits yeah. for all sorts of people um, in the late 90s and sort of I th- more like the 2000s, but she also used to work at Billboard as a, That's right. an executive assistant to, to, I think, our publisher or editor or something a million years ago. Mm-hmm. But anyway. Yeah, she's a smarty pants. She has a degree in, what is it, some kind of political, social, political degree from Duke. Um, she's quite a accomplished human and one of the most talented people I've ever written with. And she started plugging me in. I was working more with people like Rufus Wainwright and uh, Otep, who's like a 
a female-fronted death metal band. Sure, like, we're, those two t- things totally go together. Yeah, they actually they they did a joint tour together. But I mean, I was very on the fringe. I was definitely not doing anything pop, you know. Mm-hmm. Nor did I really even think of myself as a pop musician or producer or songwriter. I don't that pop music doesn't come naturally to me, which is why I do it because I find it very hard. Hmm. Anyway, so she she brought me into a lot of the stuff she was working on. One of the things she was working on, she had produced part of it and i think she'd written the entirety of Lindsay lohan's first album was that the little more personal raw that's the one i did okay that's the second one but she, okay. i can't remember the name of her first one oh. but it sold like two million copies and made a bunch of money for a bunch of people and she was I remember, on the radio yeah and, yeah, yeah. And she, i think she was 17 at the time and Lindsay actually has a good voice and lots of tone i reviewed of. the second album for billboard i really like the uh, stevie nicks cover of edge of 17 I'm really proud of the work we did on the second record, yeah. and 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 it was exciting for me because I, it was one of the few times I was working with someone who had already had kind of a perceived big hit, uh, which hadn't really happened much before for me. And Kara and I were writing songs we were proud of, and we were using Lindsay's uh, diary for lyrical inspiration. Her dad was in jail at the time, and it was a really fraught time. She was only 19. Yeah, when this was happening, and we sort of had carte blanche to just write. You know, we knew we wanted it to be listened to by many people. We weren't making a Joni Mitchell record, uh, but we kind of were, at least for Lindsay. You know, right. it's very confessional. And the whole time I was working on that, I had this like electrical feeling that this record is going to change my life. Like I just was convinced I would feel it coursing up and down my arms. It was bizarre. I remember you know telling everybody about it like i guess i have this feeling and i was i loved the music and and then it came out and the first song went to number one on mtv's trl mm-hmm. stayed there for a month it's called uh daughter to father yeah that was a pretty heavy song powerful song yeah. about her their parents you know fighting physically and she made a really ballsy video that shows that happening it shows her crying in her bedroom as a younger kid i mean it's really like you know pretty hard hitting And then it just sort of went away, and the album flopped, and I didn't know what happened, because it was all over MTV for a good, hot month. Yeah. And then I found out later that she uh, got called to do a movie that Meryl Streep was going to be in that I think Robert Altman was directing. Prairie Home Companion, I think. I think was the movie. That sounds right. And then she just wanted to focus on that, and she wouldn't go to radio to promote it. Mm. That's what I was told. Right. Um, And radio really wants you to come and shake their hand, you know? for them to back it 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 helps to do some promo yeah well it it definitely doesn't help to go i'm not showing up right you know when they're asking she was like no she didn't go to one radio station i believe so it just sort of died in the vine and i thought well why did i feel that what the heck like clearly i'm not psychic at all sorry this is so long but um and then i just sort of went on to like whatever i was working on next and my career was really in a place where I didn't have the career I'd wanted to have. I was still saying yes to working on things that I didn't love. I hadn't had that penny drop yet. Right. I thought that, cause you know, as a young musician, you kind of have to say yes to everything. Right. To just keep the lights on. Like it's I'm so working. Hard. I need to pay the rent. I will do like the, I've never had a job that wasn't music, but I've stretched the definition of that sort of to Monty Python, sort of hilarious, you know, right. extremes. Like this is totally still music. It's not music. But it is. Yeah, it I is. am playing kind of an instrument, but anyway, um, 
I don't know, half a year later, maybe it was a year later, I got a phone call at my studio, and it was Tommy Mottola, who at the time was sort of the Lucian Grange of the record business. Yeah, was he still running effectively Sony at the time? He had just stopped his 15-year reign at Sony, but he was still very involved and still ran Casablanca. Oh, Casablanca, which Lindsay was on. Yes. I think the restart, the rebooted Casablanca Lindsay was an artist on. I'm Canadian, I say Casablanca. Um, Either way, I think it's acceptable. It, well, I prefer the not my own pronunciation because I hate myself. Anyway, um, so he called and he said, I heard what you did on Lindsay's record and I, you know, sorry, it didn't go. We didn't sell very many copies. So he said, I heard what you did on it and, you know, I've signed this kid named Mika out of London um, I think you'd be the right fit for him. Hmm. Like, okay. And I just got this buzzy feeling that, well, that's interesting. Anyway, I wound up becoming Mika's record producer, and um, he had a song on his debut album called Grace Kelly that just sort of took over most of the world. I try to be like Grace Kelly mm-hmm. But I know looks were too sad So I tried a little Freddy mm-hmm. I've got answer to me I mean, it was, it was a huge hit in Europe and the UK. And it, it, was, it, was, it was a moderate hit in America as well. He was too gay for American radio. In fact, the, the head of uh, Clear Channel at the time told Mika's mother, we love this song. We can't play a song with a man singing in falsetto saying he wants to be like a woman. We just can't get behind it. Today might be different. I would like to think it would be. But she was literally told that. I mean, I didn't see that guy say it to her, but she Th- told is, me that This story. is what you've heard secondhand. From her. Right. From his mom. Just saying, in case anyone's listening and they're going to suddenly blow that out, I'm like, this is what you were told. It's what I was told. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, that came out in, in, in the UK, and it shot to number one, and it sat there for seven weeks at number one. We couldn't believe it was happening. We sold almost six million records. I wound up selling, I don't know, eight or ten million records with me. It changed my life. It changed my... That was the record that changed my life. Suddenly, you could not have to worry about paying, you know, keeping the lights on. Sorry that took 30 minutes to tell the story, but I really thought it was the Lindsay record. And then, as it turns out, it was, and in a way. Actually, it, it, it was, but in, very indirectly. It's funny how the what you sometimes think is going to be, oh, this is going to be it, and then it doesn't turn, it doesn't go the way you think. But it did. You know, the music was still impressive enough to where someone who had the next project said, I really believe in you and the sound that you provided and helped shape i believe in that and just because that album didn't work we know that there were maybe circumstances maybe that why that album didn't sell as well as it should have so with mika they're like well maybe he's available for doing promo he's not going to go into a movie and and then suddenly everything changes um you can never really tell what something is and and which is just true for life in general but then i can i say you never really really know how one thing leads to the next mm mm-hmm you know, and sometimes it can be it can be the next thing, or sometimes it's ten steps later, right. and the first nine were kind of like, eh, what but was it, that? But you can totally trace it back to Cardi Guardi and Lindsay Lohan. Like, you know, it's like like in in some weird sort of cosmic world, you wouldn't be working with you know the greatest showman had it not been for Lindsay Lohan. I can trace all of it back to two things: back to the fact that I very luckily got that grant to come here, mm. and then secondly, because I found an ad i don't know if you remember the recycler it was the original craigslist here in LA. like it's like i need a drummer or whatever they it was like published ad. classified ads yeah. pre-internet and so there was a huge you know there's lots of musicians here that are always selling used 
gear. There was a particular little $300 thing that I wanted to get. And I called, and this lovely woman answered the phone named Shelly Speck. And she said, uh, it was a mixer. And I said, well, she said, yeah, uh, you can come see it if you want. It's at my office. And I was like, what? You have a mixer at your office? Why in the world would you have a mixer inside an I office? Said, you, do you work in music? She's like, yeah, I do. I'm a songwriter for uh, for Alma Irving. And I couldn't believe it. So I said, okay, well, I can trace almost all my work back to Shelly Speck. Wow. And buying that from her. And she started hiring me to help her with some song demos. And she introduced me to a couple of friends. And those friends introduced me to a couple other people. And it just inexorably slowly. Wow. This tiny little ball started rolling down a not very sharp descent of a hill. Right. <laughs> you know. But that's where it started. Was that buying that rain line mixer from Shelly. Well, uh, to go so far in the future, um, uh, we have to talk about The Greatest Showman. Um, and I'm going to rattle off some statistics, which you may enjoy. Um, well, you produced six of the 11 tracks on The Greatest Showman soundtrack, I believe, is the correct number. I felt the other ones didn't need me to, you know, I loved <laughs> how they were. There were, there were. there were a number of producers on the, on the album, and uh, you uh, helped produce six of them. Uh, six of the tracks. Um, of course, the album hit number one on the Billboard 200 Albums chart, and it recently became the first soundtrack released in more than four years to sell a million copies in the U.S., um, which is staggering because no one really buys albums anymore. Um, so for anything to sell a million copies is a big deal, um, especially for a soundtrack, because you know there really has to be a compelling reason for someone to buy a soundtrack, and The Greatest Showman became this sort of phenomenon. Um, and it sounds like a very sort of pedestrian question, but how did you get involved? Because you hadn't done tons of soundtrack work um, necessarily. I mean, I, I know the the Ariana and Mika track popular ended up on a Wicked sort of special edition, but that was like a cast recording. But I don't think there's a whole lot of soundtracks necessarily in your repertoire. So how did this opportunity come about? I mean, I haven't been hired to work in a soundtrack ever okay. before, before Showman. Glad I got that right. I have. Well, you're correct that I have. I've had songs that I've written that wound up in movies right but they weren't always tailor-made for that movie or um i think only one was actually and then the rest was just sort of oh let's you know it's a music supervisor going that would be great in this movie right i've never worked on a cast album before i've never worked on a movie before um so michael gracie the director called and said you sounded great on that Lindsay lowen record so let's <laughs> yeah, get you on the like, greatest show i heard that really long interview you gave with billboard <laughs> all right stop um this is going to become a two-minute intro before we get to the greatest show we're editing all that other yeah, stuff please out. chop it chop it up <laughs> so uh michael he, gracie michael gracie who is a lovely lovely enthusiastic just fan of art and, australian director of the film i believe yes and it was his first film oh wow which he was reminded on a daily basis by everybody around him. It's a whole lot of people with a, with a lot of money invested in this thing. Yeah, and Don't they screw were all, it up. They were. I understand why there was, you know, some skittishness and and stress. Just you know, the, he'd never made a movie before. Hugh Jackman had his back. Hugh hired him. Uh, Michael hired me, so Michael had my back. But they, I'm sure, people were thinking, you know, no one's done this before, right? Um, but he was trying to make a period piece movie. That also, he it was very important to him that it feel contemporary. And it's very easy to make that concoction sort of unbearably cheesy and, and like, you know, wreck it. Mm-hmm. And and he said uh, they'd been working on the movie, movie Music for four years before I got hired. 
I, I worked on the film for the last half year of it. And he said, uh, Greg, I feel like what you do musically has one foot sort of rooted in, in the classics, but also feels uh, contemporary without being gimmicky. And I think that might be the right aesthetic to apply to the music that we've got right now, which is the songs are great in terms of the presentation of them. It's a bit of a mess right now. And we need someone to lasso and border collie the whole thing into like a, you know, the thread of continuity, which we don't have. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, I think, I think, you know, I think you're the guy. So they gave me one song, which is called From Now On. I started with that. ran with it and just it was the first time I'd ever worked to picture uh, which I found unbelievably informative and I loved it I found the whole thing way too intimidating for the first week just Mm -hmm. thinking how am I going to do this a lot of the stuff was already recorded and uh, so I was given sessions that included the very first version of the demo occasionally a second version of a demo and then producer number one that had been hired like their pass of it and then the other person yeah everyone's tracks and 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 orchestral session one orchestral session two done on a different coast with a different orchestral arranger you had all these different pieces that you had to somehow assemble together and that in theory this melange of sounds that you have like great i've got these 25 tracks i'm overestimating for one song from now on and now you have to make it look like it should go with what you're seeing on the screen yeah and also be contemporary but classic right but also just sound good and maybe it could become a hit record and also be true to the emotions on the screen i mean you probably have all those notes coming out to you. you're like yeah sure this is great oh my god the average track count was north of 350 tracks per song quite wow. often going over 400 tracks per song and that's before i'd recorded anything of my own playing right. um so he you know michael said I know this is a lot, but you can use none of it. You can use all of it. You can use parts of it. You can replay things. You can replay everything. You can, whatever you want to do, you can bring in other people. Just let's just try to make this work. So once I sort of got over the initial intimidation of how kind of macro this whole thing was and, and, you know, my insecure voice saying, you've never worked on a movie before and you don't know what you're doing. And, you know, I just realized that it's kind of like no different than what I do every day. It's just storytelling, but there's a visual. Right. And it was great because Michael's visuals were so good. Like, pretty much the clips I had, they weren't the final edit, but it basically looked as good as the final movie does Mm -hmm. with those amazing performances and, you know, working on This Is Me with Keala's incredible performance captured on camera. And I would just see that, like, you know, 50 times a day working on the track every day. I would always want the picture up. Was that so to better understand, like when they gave you the, you know, 400 different pieces for a particular track or mm-hmm. whatever, um, obviously they've already shot the film. Most of it. Most of it. So, like, you know, you're working with Keala's vocal for This Is Me, which was, uh, did she record a version of it in a studio like a year before you became involved and then she lip synced that on the set? Yes. 
Okay. So uh, so you had that track, and you're like, this is the track that we have to work with. This or, is the vocal we have to work with. It's like, did you then call in certain performers say, can you do some additional vocals here? Or is it mostly, this is the vocal that we have, and we're going to stick with this main lead vocal? Like, like for example, on This Is Me, is that the, is that, is that the track that you started with, or did you add things later from Kiala? Uh, she never re-sang anything on that. Well, and and uh, it should be pointed out that I'm co-producing this Yes, soundtrack with, there are, there are there are other producers involved, but but at my side through the the entire time was uh, Justin and Benj, the songwriters. Right, like they were in my studio every day for almost half a year. Um, Just couldn't get rid of them. Could Jeez. not get rid of them. They were on the podcast earlier this year too, this year too, as well as Kiala. So. What do they know? Just saying, like we're we're not throwing anyone under the Greatest Showman bus here. <laughs> we're, you're, it's all one big team. So they were they were. Oh, being, it was yeah. I'm. Yeah. Very, I'm absolutely a cog in a big machine you know and it was getting to work on their songs was amazing to have a script like this is me you know and and with her performance um really incredible so a lot of it was done we did recut some vocals with Hugh and zendaya um and i think kayala recut a couple of things but it wasn't at my studio it was really nuts i'd i'd show up and with no warning, uh, at like 11.30 in the morning, I'd get an email saying, okay, we have a new word in the middle of the third line of the second verse that Hughes recorded in Miami because he's shooting a new movie there. Fly that in. And it'd be like a word in the middle of a song because... Recorded on a different mic on a different day in a so different studio. So you make it sound like the rest of the words that he's saying I would in some do other location? everything I could to make it sound like it, but it's it, it just doesn't work that way. It's like, you know, it's like a different chef in a different kitchen so, making the same dish it doesn't it's not going to taste the same so then how in the world would you make that one word sound like everything else i i'm an old man you like know you I ultimately sort of, did or did you just say resing the whole damn thing no I, there's there's a, i mean i can i can make it work unless it's really broken i can make it work wow. um, and nothing was ever really broken um so you continued to work with kiala after the greatest showman or sort of kind of while it was happening you produced her ep chapter one um, which came out last December. Uh, it's a covers record, and it has great covers of Nika Costa, and uh, I think there's a Chris Stapleton cover on it. Gladys Knight. It's all over the place. Um, who she briefly sang background vocals for a million years ago. Mm. Um, and I and she said that there was a chapter two that was coming at some point down the road, and I think that it was going to include original material. Is there anything that you can say about um, the status of that project? Uh, though I know Kiala is not here to speak for herself, so there's only probably so much you can say. But can we say anything about yeah chapter two? We have been writing and recording music off and on, um, even before uh, chapter one came out, and. You know, I wrote to her an email last August, last summer, because I was working on This Is Me all the time, and I just finally wrote to the director and said, who is this person? Who, yeah. you know, I've never heard anyone sing like this. I've never seen a performance like this in a movie in my life. Who is this? And he wrote back, and said, oh, it's uh, Kay Alla Settle. And it turns out I'd actually seen her in Waitress on Broadway, oh. but I didn't realize it was her, and I was friends with the drummer. I am friends with the drummer in Waitress, and I was kind of watching the whole thing more, and um, and so he gave me her email address. I asked if it was okay to reach out to her, and and I did. I just said, "You're fantastic. You're killing me." I'm like, "You're making me cry every time I hit play." And 
uh, thank you so much. And it just kind of started there. And then at some point I said, have you ever considered making a record or have you in the past made a record that I don't know about? And she said, no, I, you know, you know, it's not, it's never felt right. And we finally met in person and, and I just said, why don't you just like, do you want to try? And, uh, and she said, she looked at me and she was in full bearded lady. They were doing some reshoots (laughs) in Burbank She's on set, like the big blue dress, the whole thing. And she just said, yes. It was very impulsive. And uh, came over and held my hand, and, you know, we clicked. Mm-hmm. And and um, we've actually, because she's become good friends with my whole family, with my wife, and even our kids adore her and vice versa. And she's uh, sort of a master musician. I mean, she's really an incredible singer yeah. and interpreter of songs. And turns out quite... A damn fine songwriter too, which I didn't know would happen. So we've, I just wanted to record something with her. So we did chapter one really fast, and I said, let's not start writing for it. Let's just do your some of your favorite cover songs. Let's just do it, right. just to do it, just to get you in the mode of like being in the studio, working with a record producer. This is not acting. This is pure music. Just you as a singer. And uh, she found it a little uncomfortable at first. You know, sometimes very uncomfortable. And then by the end, started to really love the process. Um, and then we tried writing together and, uh, that went well. And then we did it again and that went even better. And so we have some songs that are pretty done now. Mm -hmm. And, and we made the decision, um, rather than self-release another EP that will just, I just uploaded that first thing myself. I just used TuneCore and, you know, there's no, there's no PR machine behind it at all. There's nothing. Um, a bunch of record labels have been knocking on the door. Shock. Yeah. What a shock. Which I didn't care about because I, I wanted to make a record with her before we even knew Showman would break even. Like, I, you know, I had no, I, no one knew that Showman was going to be the hit that it is. Yeah. Or that Kehala would have this huge song around the world. Like, we, no one knew. Believe me, no one knew. Um, we just tried to get it as great as we could get it to where we loved it. And I still wanted to work with her then. So I think that's also maybe why we have kind of a, a nice trust. You know, I'm not like, oh, you made money for 20th right. Century Fox. Let's. You're not one of the people that were sort of floating in come early January, like, hey there. Right. Just heard of you. It's like, no, I knew you before this was a hit, and I just loved your voice, and I wanted to work with you. I really wanted to work with her. That's what I'm like. So, so now basically it's just sort of in limbo as we determine if she's going to be on a label or something. We're, we're looking thing. for the right partner, Got and it. we haven't even really officially started doing that yet. Um, but some fantastic folks have shown up who uh i really like as record label people and the way that they run their companies so we'll see but we're holding off on uh, I, I think chapter two is just going to become part of her whatever album. the next album the, the real the sort of the introduction of yeah her album. debut album may not even call chapter two anymore who knows um um i i, I want to kind of spin that off um to talking about some of the other folks that you worked with because This Is Me was a big hit on the Billboard charts. Um, it was a, it hit the Hot 100. It was a dance. It was on our Dance Club Songs chart because it did uh, dance remixes of the song. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it was an airplay hit, which was kind of surprising that this sort of musical film would have a airplay hit on the radio, um, which is uncommon because Les Miserables certainly didn't spin off any airplay hits. Right. You know, I mean, right. so... Everything was just so unusual, and I just wanted to sort of take that chart uh, nugget and spin that to talk about some of the other charting artists that you've worked with. 
so so just smooth there. Um, uh, so I wanted to just sort of stroll down memory lane and um, pick your brain on um, some of the folks that you've worked with because you've worked with a lot of folks. Um, uh, first off, uh, Dua Lipa, mm-hmm. who you produced and co-wrote a track on her debut album called uh, Garden. Well, mm-hmm. the album's not called Garden. The album is Dua Lipa. The song is called Garden. So are we leaving this Um, did you work with her physically together in the studio when you were working on the song? Or was it yeah. something that you sort of sent in and you produced some other element? No, 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 no. no. I've written three or four songs with her. Oh, okay. Um, her management had her writing with a lot of people for a number of years before that record came out. I yeah, mean, they was, really built it. I think they were waiting to kind of find the right moment when something would kind of happen. Um, because she was on the show a little over a year ago and the album hadn't come out yet. And at the time... I think something had come out in the UK, but they were still holding off in America. And we were kind of press, pressing her on like, well, is it done? She's like, well, I'm actually here right now, possibly doing some other things. Like basically saying like, I'm still making more songs for this mm-hmm. album that is going to come out. And I think that the album was even delayed by a couple months when I think they realized they had something maybe possibly big and new rules and then they had to sort yep, of yeah that's so, all true it was anyway sorry go ahead delayed delayed at least once yeah um you know I, I i have to remind myself and i and i try to remind everyone i work with no one's gonna thank anyone for how long or quickly a record gets made it doesn't matter especially a debut album or song uh, it matters that it's the right song and right. that you've built the, the the you know you've got the bespoke tailor-made clothing on that you want to wear and launch into space and you know yeah um and that can take 10 years that can happen quickly sometimes i love that they didn't rush it i think they recognized they had a big star potentially yes. on their hands she's a smarty pants she's a great songwriter herself she's a great singer she's very wise for her age she's really young i think she was you forget how young she is 19 or 20 when i first met her yeah um so you were was this something where it was kind of like they just she was working with a zillion people and you're like okay up next it's greg wells yeah i think she was in la doing songwriting sessions Mm -hmm. and uh uh, my first day was um her and the great songwriter sean douglas uh we wrote two songs with her um and the first one was garden it used to be called garden of eden and she shortened it to garden um and then i was in london maybe a year later and I did a day or two with her then as well, hmm. writing something that that didn't see the light of day. And then she so called far. me. <laughs> so far, you never know; it could materialize. You never know. I think it's actually way. it's a good song. She sounded really good on it. And then Garden, uh, you know, I kept thinking, well, Garden might not make the record if they keep adding songs and adding songs and adding songs, and clearly they're kicking songs off the album. Right. But we uh, we stayed on and. Then she called me right in the final stages of mixing. She said, look, I love this song. It doesn't really sound like it fits on my record. Hmm. And I don't know what to do. So I said, okay, well, let me hear your record. So she sent me her favorite songs. And I said, all right, who worked on this? And um, and most of the songs were done by uh, one team. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, let's just I'll just co-produce it with them. Like, I want you to be happy with it. I want you to feel like this also belongs on the same, 
whatever the metaphor is. I'm trying to be funny, but I want it to feel like it's part of the same record, right? Because you know? we'd done that song, I think, two years before that stage, where she'd already kind of probably reinvented herself at least once or twice, or maybe ten. To, who knows? Mm-hmm. And she said, "Okay, well, let me ask them," and and everyone was up for it, so we did. And um, basically, it sounds like what we had before, but there's a couple of like extra little background vocal sound effecty things, mm-hmm. and I love what happened with it. Um, but it does just skew a little more toward the rest of the production style on her record, which in presentation is super important. And I'm not, I don't feel like you have to use what I, you know, I wasn't even there when they were making most of these tracks. And I always want, I I hate it when a song jumps out where clearly it was done with a a team of people that didn't hear the rest of the record. Mm -hmm. I don't want to feel that like, it's like this, it's a whole bunch of different parts of something that don't actually assemble. It's like this weird Frankenstein thing. Yeah. "Mm, This should really go together. It's like, it should be a cohesive, that's what I mean. That's what's so great about her album is that you feel like it's all a part of her, her and her vision, mm. and it's very, it's very pop. But at the same time, it's very sophisticated. It's very, it's like when you see her and her sort of vision and what she looks like and how she sings. It, I think it all goes together very well, and I think it's a great pop album. And I can see why they wanted to make sure, and she probably wanted to make sure that it worked together. I'm glad she reached out about yeah. it. You know. So for that, did you just basically say, all right, we'll take all the parts, and if they want to tweak it to a certain way, make it sound the way that you want it to make it sound. Exactly. And I gave you my blessing. Did you have to like sort of listen to it again and be like, no, that sounds terrible? Or you're like, I trust you. Uh, I'm, I mean, I'm sure that I, I'm, you know, I don't take myself very seriously at all, which is hopefully self-evident, but I take the music really seriously. Mm-hmm. And the most valuable commodity I have are my master tracks like the masters as a record label will call it. So I, I can't just give that away. I can't just hand that over to whomever. So we had to work out some sort of, you know, deal where everyone was comfortable, where I was comfortable, where the other producer was comfortable, where, where duo was comfortable, you know, everyone. Wow. Once we had that, then yes, I sent them my pro tool session. And, uh, and I said, you know, let me hear it and let's, let's collaborate on it right. together. So, so it can be a true actual co-production where you're all producing it together as opposed to here, go ahead. And like, mm. cause you know, you always, I mean, I think the average person will see credits on songs and not fully understand, well, what did that person do and how did they possibly, how did you go from there to the there, you know, from point right. A to point B right. and, it, and what you described is similar to what something that, um, um, like it was Leland and Justin Tranter were here talking about working with Selena Gomez and there were like seven songwriters on a track. Right. I'm like, how in the world are that many people? And then they described the process of like, well, it started with me and then these producers came in and they added a different kind of bead and then da, 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 da. And then we get to like seven because Selena came in and changed the lyrics again. So it's interesting from what you described, how, you know, it, sort of there's many more cooks in the kitchen but at the same time the end result can still be a very cohesive you know moment or co- cohesive song as part of a larger vision and i digress because i see you think you have long stories um you also wrote or you actually produced we mentioned 21 pilots earlier you produced their entire vessel album mm-hmm. am i correct Um, could you sense that they were going to become as big as they ended up being? Because the next album, I mean, Vessel was big, 
but then blurry face ended up becoming enormous. Did you like, could you sense at the time, like, Oh, they're onto something like this is going to be huge. Oh, I, 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 yes. Yeah. It like, was really evident. I you're mean, like, no, the answer is no. I thought they were going nowhere. I mean, you can see <laughs> on YouTube, you can see performances that they did in their hometown before vessel. And they were like, you know, uh, asking for favors from every friend that they had. And they were borrowing scaffolding and, you know, uh, Tyler's roommate is a great videographer. I don't think he's a roommate anymore. He's married, but they lived together for a long time. And, um, and that, that guy just makes amazing videos. He's really talented behind the camera and they were just killing it then. Mm-hmm. You know, he was jumping off 15 foot risers then. And, uh, it hurt someday. His knees at some point are going to be like, yeah. the party's over. Like, I'm an old man, <laughs> but he's, yeah, he's not an old man yet. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I had a huge gut feeling about them and, um, uh, they're, you know, it's a pretty incendiary duo, and um, Tyler is sort of devastatingly talented as a songwriter, um, as a producer, as a track guy. Um, he's fantastic. You know, I, I, I just had that feeling. Here's the only thing I can rely on. I know when stuff makes me feel that sort of buzzy, <gasps> kind of excited feeling inside, and when I have that, and when we can finally get it to the finish line in my studio where I feel like, I want to play this for people. I can't wait for people to hear this. Then I know I have something. I have no clue how it's going to react to the fickle marketplace. You can't really predict that stuff. But I do know it, it will find its audience. Like, that's how I felt about Showman. I felt like this will find its audience. The audience could be 10 people. It could be a lot more than that. It could be not much more than that. But it will definitely find some people that get it like we do. Right. You know? And, and absolutely. I think, you know, I think... um I think Vessel, it's probably fair to say, caught um, Atlantic by surprise, maybe, to some degree, you know? I think so, yeah. And, uh, uh, and they started selling out shows, and there wasn't, like, a huge push at all behind Vessel. Mm. But I think then they were like, okay, well, we got to get behind the next record. And, and Blurry Face is a great record. Um, and it's... You know, when you have that sort of wind in your sails, because they really chased it. Oh, yeah, yeah. It makes a big difference. But it's nice it's made vessel sales go up. We just went platinum a couple yeah. months ago. And no, the, the, it's, it, what, what happened to them is incredible, because, you know, Blurry Face was so huge. And then basically what happened was everyone that was really into Blurry Face was like, oh, I think I'll probably be into the rest of their stuff. And people actually wanted to go buy and stream and download the two I think two. I think there's two previous albums. I think this yeah. They have some indie albums they made too, which are yeah. really good. And all those like Vessel started selling and like sh- showing up back on the charts. So I mean that that speaks to you know their artistry and how they were able to. It's not it's not just about that one album, Blurry Face. It was about their catalog. And then it's like right. no, there's more than just this one hit record. We actually have this whole catalog, and people were discovering them, which is absolutely and what yeah. you want to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll, I'll I'll sort of wrap up with one other artist. I mean, you've worked with, I mean, you were involved with the production of Apologize with Timbaland and One Republic. You know, you worked with Katy Perry. You worked with who? Who? Katy Perry. Um, well, actually, I can ask a short. I actually want to ask a short question about Katy Perry. Uh, you, I believe, you produced and co-wrote "You're So Gay" mm-hmm. on the first album. Mm-hmm. You're so gay and you don't even like boys. Did 
did you get any flack for that at any point? Did anyone say, hmm, is this a great idea? A lot, a lot of people didn't get the intent right. with, what, with which we wrote it. Um, and um, and I, I mean, I understand. I get it. But that's, you know, that's not at all what, like, was behind it. We weren't, we were, it was, it's tough because most of, without sounding ridiculous, most of the people that are my friends, most people that I work with, happen to be gay. I don't know why that is. Uh, and the same is very true for Katie, mm-hmm. possibly even more so. Um, so I think she was comfortable making that joke about a guy who may not have been gay that she dated, you know? Mm-hmm. She was trying to be funny. And right. I remember when she walked in and she said, I've got this song. I've just got a verse. And I think I know what the chorus is, but I can't finish it. I don't have a second verse. I don't have a bridge. I don't know what to do with this, which is how a lot of our songs start. Hmm. Not like the movies was like that, too. She had verse one. She had the first chorus. That was it. At this point, she'd been dropped from Columbia Records. She did not have a record deal when we wrote You're So Gay. But I still would write with her, and I I really believed in her. Um, And she came in, and she sort of, like, kicked to the curb a bit. And she sat down with her guitar and started playing, like, you know... I hope you hang yourself with your H&M scarf and it just goes on and I fell off my chair laughing. It just it was so fun. I don't think she knew how funny it was. Mm-hmm. And it's super irreverent and that's the point of it, you know. Right. It's, we're not trying to like sing kumbaya with that song. Um I'm really proud of that song. But yes, absolutely. There were a ton of people that were like that's not funny, you know. Uh, friends of mine would say that's not funny. Mm. And then other friends were like that's my favorite song. So it's I find that a lot of the music I've worked on has a very polarizing effect. I don't know why people either hate it or that it's they feel the opposite about it. Hmm. Um, yeah. You also worked with Adele, a woman that you may have heard of on her 21 album. Um, you wrote a track called One and Only. Uh, I know it ain't And uh, uh, I'm wondering, uh, Adele is obviously a lovely person. I spoke to her for about a hot 30 seconds once. Lovely. Um, I'm assuming she was as lovely and warm and fabulous as I'm imagining she is when you actually work with her on a song. She is. She sort of spoiled all future co-writing sessions for me. I was really hoping you would say that she was actually, no, she was a total She is just such a diva. No, she (laughs) is exactly that, what you described. And she's even cooler than that. She's just, you know, she grew up really humbly. I think this is all um, a surprise to her. Um, Maybe not at this point, but, uh, you know, she was 21 years old when we were writing. We wrote for three days at my studio. Um, She, I remember, I heard the, the chords in my head for one and only driving into the studio that day. And I played it for her and said, what do you think of this? She said, I like that. Can you just loop that four-bar pattern? Just loop it. Okay. So I'm in my... The room where I record vocals also has three pianos in it. And so I'm sitting in one of the pianos and playing. She said, just keep keep repeating that. And she's walking around with a notebook and a pencil. And I can hear her kind of like... Like muttering, kind of humming. Mm-hmm. It had gone on for a while, like 10 minutes. This is a woman just wandering around mum- muttering to herself. Yeah, like maybe she has something's wrong. You right. Know? 
So I, I remember <laughs> saying, like, do you want me to keep playing? She said, yeah, if you don't mind, just keep. So finally, after like 15, 20 minutes, she said, okay, you can stop. I have something, and I'm so English. She said, it might be, it might be utter shite. Yeah. But just tell me what you think. She said, can you play it again? So I counted her in. And she unleashed in full voice the exact melody and lyric that is on the record. That's the first time she ever sang that chorus. And and then we finished and she said, in all earnest in all earnestness, she she looked at me and said, Well, what do you think? And I was like I just started laughing. So I I think I think we're on to something. You know, it was ridiculous to have her maybe two feet away from my ear and she was singing that chorus wow. in my uh to me. You know, and I knew I was the only person hearing this, but I just had this feeling like more people will hear this melody at some point. Wow. Um, we, you know, nobody knew that 21 would go on to to break all the records that it did. Yeah. I mean, um, 19 was successful, so you already knew that. But at the same time, like, you, no one knew that it would, 21, the next album, would just turn into this once-in-a-generation type album. Yep. Um, I mean, it was like, when you think of 21 now, it's like, I mean, had I mean that would have been so terrible had you known like if if you were, I mean God help the people that worked on twenty five, you know because you're basically trying to like that would be effectively the same thing as like so you have to work with Michael Jackson on the bad album following Thriller, you know yeah. it's like how do you like the such pressure and it's like you it's like oh well nineteen was great it, it did pretty well and now she's doing her second album she's a, a lovely woman she's a great songwriter great singer as opposed to this thing is going to sell millions and millions and millions. It's going to become this. It's like, you didn't have that pressure. It was just, we're having a great moment and we're getting to write songs together. Um, I hate I, that toxicity. Yeah. I hate it. I cut you off. I, 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 I am kind of curious. You spent, you said you spent three days together. Uh, did you write more than one song? Are you allowed to say, cause I think this is, this is the one song that she has released with you. Are there other songs that you worked with her on that, did not come out yet. Yeah, we uh, we demoed. You're allowed to say. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> the fans know about it. It's a song called "Devil on My Shoulder." Is it like floating around in demo form? I don't think YouTube? so. I think that I think great. Someone... Link it to us. We can put it up at the story. Yeah, no, it's on my phone. <laughs> great, play it. Uh, she registered. Call up Adele. It. She'll be fine with it. I'm sure. Um, she registered it, and her fans caught it, and they're like, "Oh, what's uh, that? Well, what's this song?" Um, and it was uh, sort of a Bo Diddley, very up tempo, kind of like '50s, almost big band thing that was really fun and she has emailed me since uh since doing it going we gotta finish that thing because it's really like it, it's and she sounds amazing on it but it really did not fit what became 21 right sonically it just wasn't happening it's just a very like kind of fun psychotic up very up tempo song she doesn't do a whole lot of like up tempo numbers that's the thing like you know it's like mid tempos slightly up tempo but she's not like doing like dance bangers I hope at some point the world will hear it because it's actually g- great. Like, there's, you know, we, we didn't quite finish it, but it's uh, it's really fun, and we had a blast working on it together. But the, your point is really interesting. Like, I, uh, you know, the hardest thing is not to have a big hit. The hardest thing is to have a big hit after you've already had a big hit, because the water you're drinking, you just, it's really hard to avoid it. It's it's kind of poisoned. It's toxic. You, there's so many bean counters in an artist's ear once they've had a big commercial success that's made you know whatever money that the artist and their manager makes the label's making what five to ten times more than that i mean the labels really get the lion's share of the profits so mm-hmm. they are not going to hold back and say well this has got to you know 
It's got to do at least what the one before did, if not surpass it. There is so much pressure right now for you to make tons of money. And that has never made art better. It always makes it worse. And um, I I feel very Papa Bear protective over that. You know, that kind of pressure, that sort of like people whispering in your ear, just makes you second guess yourself, takes you out of the moment, um, leads to crappy art, you know. And I think some people can handle it. I'm too thin-skinned to <laughs> handle it. I can't. It just makes my eyes cross, and I hate seeing an artist I'm working with feel that stuff. So I really like working with an artist that's at the point that she was at then after she'd made 19, and I think she won the Grammy for Best New Artist or something. She had a great moment on Saturday Night Live. Oh, but yeah. She was still kind of like under the, the radar. Show. Yes. Was it really? It was, a Sarah, it was a Sarah Palin show that she was on. Crazy. Yeah. But that's like that's a cool place to be at, you know. There wasn't like this massive corporate expectation that we're all going to get our bonus checks this year. And but that is what happens. Um, that's why I love working with Twenty One Pilots because they just made some indie records that they just done on, on their own. Uh, no one knew they were going to wind up going platinum. You know, I just knew that they were great. It's very hard and takes a very objective, very wise artist to not succumb to that kind of. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? How do I do this again? How do it's you know, it's uh, so much of this stuff I feel like is out of our control. Yeah, how things connect to the marketplace. It's uh, timing is a huge part of it. You got to have a great product, but ultimately you got to have something that you feel like you can go up on stage and sing and and want to sing for the five hundredth time in a row, and that's got to come from a true place. And if you're trying to second guess the marketplace then you're more of an entertainer at that point and you're, you're trying to make money from entertainment um, I sway more to people trying to create something original that they're proud of and I'm all for it being entertaining but I want it, the pendulum to be more on the art creation side of things rather than like how do we fleece the pu- public you know right I think it's an interesting way to kind of wrap this conversation up um, when you talk about the sort of happy circumstance of commercial success but that's not in your brain that was me knocking my noggin um and you're not you know it's like you you want to make great art and yes we're all in a business so there is obviously monetary you know you you are rewarded for such art um but at the end of the day you're still doing things that you feel strongly about um, but what's interesting is that to circle it back to the very beginning of the conversation, mm-hmm. um, you're not having to do that thing where I'm, you know, I'm calling this music, but it's not really in the music business. You know, you're doing things that you really want to do now. You can make those choices and you're not worrying about having to, you know, am I going to have ramen for the next three weeks? Like, you know, you've, you've, it's like such a great, incredible change and how, how far things have come. Um, and it all comes back to, you bought that mixer and you met the right people and you started doing demos and then cut to, you know, 25 years later and Mm -hmm. you have a track on Adele's 21 and you worked with 21 pilots and you worked on the greatest showman. Like, it's just incredible to sort of the career arc and how you, you made all those right choices and you never felt that you were sort of like selling, selling yourself out or, you know, doing something for the wrong reasons. I don't Um, know why. I mean, I, these are things that I feel like you're saying, but I just think it's incredible that you've, you've had the career that you've wanted to have. I wish I had that penny drop early on, though. Like, I, I when I first met Paul Epworth, uh, the first thing I said to him was, you know, I'm just, your discography is immaculate. Like, there's not one whoops on your discography. <laughs> everything is cool. Block party. Everything's just, like, completely 
<clears throat> unbelievably curated. I love and, that. Whoops. It's like, ooh. Oh, my discography is a huge whoops, you know, until until I had, not everything. but Not there's, everything. There was a lot of things where I'm like, yeah, I think I can make that, but I... There were better people suited for that job than me, mm-hmm. and 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 I get that, and I'll say that to people. Like, I don't think I'm the right person to work on this. I think I'll even suggest other people for it. But I, if I feel my collar kind of being pulled toward a thing, I wish I'd always done that. I've said this to friends, and they're like, "No, no, no, you've learned a lot from doing other things," and th- that's all true. But I think you can be that that protective over things, even when it is hard to keep the lights on, and you are eating ramen. You know, yeah, uh, you can still. The choices that you make will forever be the choices that you've made. And and now in this over-documented world we live in, like yeah. it's, you can very quickly find out every choice publicly that anyone's ever made publicly. And most of the work I get now at this point is, is based on work that I have done. You know, um, It's not based on the work I had done before. Am I making sense? I, I'm rambling again. But it's all based on work that I've done once I approached it that way. Right. Like if I don't feel like I love it, I won't. I won't go near it because I don't sound good. I don't. I sound like I'm not good. It's a bit like leaning in to kiss somebody you don't feel like you want to kiss. Obviously, they're different things, but you can't really fake that. You know, right? Uh, it's not going to go well if you lean in to kiss somebody. You, no matter how much you've had to drink, this isn't going to feel right. It's, it's probably not going to happen again either. Yeah, you know. So clearly, different things, but. Or like eating food you don't like the taste of. You can't really pretend that you like, like food you don't like. I can eat like. this, but it's not going to be great. Yeah. You know, like I could really, I'm, I'm, I know I'm better suited at this. So why don't I eat that pizza instead of that <laughs> thing over there? Instead which, of the kale. Instead of the, the big pile of kale. Yeah. You know, kale used to be on the salad bars. That's, and, and now it's turning to things we actually eat willingly. <laughs> like it used to be like when you go to a pizza parlor, like a round table or something, like the salad bar... That green stuff. It was garnish. It was like gar- it was just like this tough thing that wouldn't expire throughout the day, yes. and now we eat it. But I'm with you. Anyway, back to this. Thank you so much for coming in. This was thanks lovely. for letting me uh, go on forever. Thank no problem. Like when you were looking at your watch, you're like you've just missed a, a songwriting session. That's <laughs> that's just what happened. Thanks again to Greg for stopping by the pop shop. Um, we really appreciated your time um, and uh, we loved chatting with you. So come back anytime. Um, we're going to go out on uh, one of the biggest songs that Greg has been a part of. Uh, he uh, produced this track with Timbaland and Ryan Tedder of One Republic. And it's Apologize, which is uh, Timbaland featuring One Republic. We'll see you guys next time. If you're snacking on anything but tasty cake, you're making a huge Miss Cake. A fistful of chocolate-covered raisins? Miss Cake. A spoonful of peanut butter? Bigger Miss Cake. Or the worst Miss Cake of all, your kid's Halloween candy, and it's April. If it's not tasty cake, it's a Miss Cake. Because nothing satisfies like a perfectly sweet butterscotch crimpet. Or rich and creamy chocolate peanut butter candy cake. Tasty cake. Except no substitute. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18+ plus. terms and conditions apply. See website for details.